When celebrating a loved one's life, you want to deal with someone who's compassionate, open and honest. Here's James McLeod, Managing Director of Tobin Brothers Funerals. At Tobin Brothers, our people are our strength and 50% of our staff are female. They serve client families in their absolute time of need. They work in every aspect of our business, from funeral service delivery to the board of directors. Turban Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives, celebrating International Women's Day, Sunday, March 8. On RSN, welcome to This Is Your Racing Life, proudly presented by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's Brian Martin. Well, good morning and welcome to Racing Life right here on RSN, and it's a pleasure to catch up with an old mate, the voice of the West, a man whose race calls, particularly from about 5 o'clock to 5.30 in the evening, have a huge bearing on people in the East as to whether they're going to eat that night. Darren McCauley, welcome. How are you, mate? That's no pressure, is it, BM? No, thanks, Brian. Lovely to be able to be in Melbourne, actually, and catch up with you here. And you say old mates because we've been in the broadcasting game for a long, long time, and I feel as though I'm nearing the back end of it all, and so you do start to get very reflective. So I'm enjoying the fact that we're having this chat and going to reflect back about some of the the great races that have been run, and I've had the pleasure of calling in Perth over the years. I didn't realise the impact, though, that you have (laughs) when you're calling from Ascot and you know that you're in the twilight, Mm. either in Melbourne or in Sydney, and the the band of followers that just tune in at that particular time and they're, they're listening to your broadcast, and obviously they're backing pike <laughs> to try and get them out of all sorts Drink of... Drink what you like if you're back pike, yeah. Yeah, they're normally in a bit of froth and bubble at that stage of the day and pike to the rescue. So I, I get a, a sense of um, satisfaction out of that. And I, I note too, uh, sort of later on the program, that uh, you do inject a little bit of theatre as we do, and uh, it's brilliant. I've got to say, and I don't want to embarrass you, but uh, you're one of my favourite race callers. You really are, and you've got a, you've got a lot of fans... Uh, particularly over here in the East, and I'll uh, I'll use a term that the great racing writer and journalist wrote, uh, Les Carline. Lovely man. Yeah, great Lovely. man, and um, he described your voice as smooth as molasses from the barrel. Oh, <laughs> did he really? <laughs> yes, he did. I poured a bit of it in my time, actually, growing <laughs> up. Uh, it's lovely, and Les was awfully kind to me um, some years ago when I had to write a piece on the light horseman and deliver it at a luncheon for the carbine club in Singapore and I knew that if I needed some guidance and direction there was one man that would help me in that area because of his love of the horse and horse racing but also of war history and Liz was remarkably giving in helping me steer that that script that narrative which I delivered in Singapore um, in 2015 so we were celebrating the hundred years of course of Gallipoli Mm. The piece that I'd written with his blessing, I I narrated to the crowd that day with some beautiful old black and white vision from uh, the archives that the um, war memorial had given to them to use. And, geez, it was an emotional day, that one too. But I'll always and be ever thankful for Les for helping me steer through that because it was a a difficult piece to write in many respects. He was... uh not only a marvellous mm. writer, um, you know, a writer that the lights we haven't seen mm. uh, before, and he, he passed uh, back in 2019. Yeah, I love the bloke. He was just... I took him to Kalgoorlie. Oh, did you? I took him to Kalgoorlie, Les, and uh, he and his wife, and we shared four beautiful days, and, and he he got 
the place. He understood the history, the richness, the boom and bust sort of lifestyle of, of the gold fields from when it was first inhabited um, to the big, you know, um, um, gold discoveries by, by Hannon, you know, Shea and Flannery and, and co. And, and he got it. He got the architecture and he got the sense of the people from there. And I was so pleased that I'd taken him there. I'd been lucky because I'd taken Scobie and May Breezley there. Uh, Scobie had won that cup, Calgary Cup, in 1946, I think it was, from memory, mm. on a horse called Pantheist and uh, had the great opportunity to take Scobie back there. And it was as though he was one of the locals. He settled in like a hand in a glove. And uh, over the years have had the chance to take people like Les Carline and, and many others, John Tapp, our dear friend, more recently, uh, and so many others too. Back to my hometown where this all started really, I guess that's probably um, you know something that we'll talk about, um, how, how you get going and, and how the opportunities come about to, to bring you to where you are today. Put me on that list. I'd love to see Kalgoorlie and, and this is where it all began. Now tell me about your dad, Les, mm. and your connection to racing. Well, he was a, a jockey in his early days. He was never going to make it from all accounts because he was going to get too heavy. But he was apprenticed to Reg Trafone and uh, Reg, a great Goldfields family. Uh, he and his brother, um, Eric, champion jockey associated yeah. with Raconteur, of course. And um, Reg um, trained a fair horse called Aquanita, <laughs> which <laughs> you may remember. Ever, yeah. And so we grew up. Um, with this great uh, icon in the house, Aquanita. Dad spoke reverently about Aquanita and we knew his pedigree off by heart. And uh, he had to give the riding away, finished up becoming a, um, a PMG linesman. But he still kept riding track work for a lot of the local trainers up there and one of them happened to work also for the PMG, George Grilicic at the time. Not the old broadcasting George Grilicic, but his oh, cousin. Okay, yeah. And still trains to this very day and Dad um, uh, was associated with a horse that George trained called Natbury, who was by Wateringbury, mm-hmm. who was the sire of Aquanita. Yeah. And a uh, magnificent-looking horse, and we were captivated by it as little kids, and I'd just grab hold of his coattails and head to the stables every day. And uh, in the end, I became a pest, and uh, I was ordered <laughs> out of the yards. And uh, it, it broke my heart because all I wanted to do was be around horses. And, you know, as I said, we go back to the molasses yeah, story, yeah, and that was, yeah. you know, boiling the barley and, and the oats and putting the molasses in and, you know, that intoxicating aroma. You can and still smell it, can't you? You can yeah, smell it. I yeah, can taste it yeah. in my fingers still to this very day. Sticky and stuff. Yeah, lovely, though. Uh, <laughs> I used to eat it by the spoonful. And I still have it for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Um, I, I, the closest I get these days is golden syrup. But, um, you know, the, the smell of the leather in the tack room, mm. just the the whole vibe of a stable. A small stable, but a vibe all the same and the expectation of going to the races. And, yeah. and I was barely yeah. five, six, seven years of age, I suppose. I would play um, a little bit of football on the Saturday morning and then jump on the old Melbourne Star and ride from North Kell to South Kell and there was a hole in the fence up where the old Ledger Grandstand used to be, no longer there. But that Ledger Grandstand became a bit of a a playground for me because it uh, had been left to rot over the years and become very dilapidated. But there was a uh, a lot of old machinery and old uh, racing artefacts stored oh, in tea yeah. chests oh, yes. under the stand and yeah. I used to rummage through them, the old jockey horse plate names that they'd reefed up on the yeah, infield yeah, semaphore yeah. and the coconut shell jockey helmets as well and old silks and 
jockey numbers that they used to wear on their arms. Were they preserved? Were they preserved? Yeah, they have been. Yeah, oh, they've got good. a beautiful museum there too, the Signpost Museum. And luckily, David Reed uh, took charge of that, and he and Keith Biggs, uh, Keith, oh, of yes, course, of yeah. Doremus fame yeah. and, and Dignity yeah. Dancer and many others, mm. uh, they put their money into it and they made sure that the restoration of those artefacts was going to ensure that people like, you know, uh, the next generations coming yeah. through would be able to see yeah. them. So I'd go down there and you'd find a spot on the fence and then the horses would come galloping past and and just the noise of the jockeys and, you know, most people aren't aware of the, the, the yelling and the screaming that goes on in a race, particularly when you're kicking off the home corner and mm. you can hear heels touching and clipping and horses breathing and it's heaving. That, you're right, because mm. I remember myself as, as a young kid going to the Caulfield races and mm. sitting on one of the fences, the steeplechase fences, virtually were on the flat. This is back sort of uh, 59, 60, so I was very young. But the thunder of the horses, the sound coming through the ground before you actually saw them and just the peak of their caps, it was that thunder that sort of captivated you. Mm, yeah, the really groan yeah. of the horses had extended to find mm. another gear. And sounds of a racetrack. Oh, look, you know what, I'd go home and I'd just dream about it in my <laughs> bedroom at night and I had jockey's colours hung up on a, you know, an old closed hanger uh, in, in my bedroom with a jockey skull cap and there were the old racetrack magazines laying yeah. around. I mean, that was it. That, I knew what my life was going to be about. And fortunately, I, my grandfather on my mother's side was an actor. Uh, he was the lead actor in the local theatre company. And, and we didn't have television until 1969 in Kalgoorlie. So yeah. theatre was a very big part of the community. Mm. And they had a majestic old theatre uh, up in Brookman Street. And we'd go along and my grandfather and my auntie who was a very very accomplished actress as well uh, would perform in all of these plays and I got the chance to sit out the back with the other actors and uh, see them rehearsing their lines and and also you know the the, the way that um, they would approach their craft and I thought the theatre world also was captivating uh, the smell of the makeup in the back room all of these extrasensory type things that Mm. you never forget and then you'd watch the the production and uh, I used to watch my grandfather prepare, uh, learning his lines week after week after week, and, and an avid book writer. And also, um, he loved the races too with my nan. That every Saturday morning, gather up with all these pseudo aunties and uncles that I gathered over the years, and <laughs> they'd be sitting around the table and they'd be listening to, you know, if the show had come in from Melbourne, it'd be Bert Bryant or Bill Collins, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, it was going to be um, Kenny Howard up in Sydney, and so they were, you know, captivated by it anyway. So there was that lovely blend of theatre and racing together and I think it gets back to your point about broadcasting when coming through this era, this era which I'm very, very fortunate to have been part of and maybe the last of us coming I think you're through right. yeah. where you had the chance to be creative and theatrical and you could bring lines and descriptive, imaginative uh, verbalising of a race to paint the picture yeah. and that was what my old boss at the ABC said when I first started there in Kalgoorlie, um, Stan Brown, he said, you've got to broadcast races as though you're calling to a blind audience. Yeah, he said, yeah. if you can get that right, then I think you'll succeed. That's the advice that Bill Collins gave me. Yeah. I took that on board, and I think a lot of other people did the same that came through this field. So did you want to be a jockey? Because I, I did. did. Yeah, I did. I had my heart set on it. And we had hacks. We rode, and uh, a lot of my mates had hacks. We would take off out in the bush. And we'd have uh, imaginary race meetings where we would run against each other. And some days, uh, 
you know, with a bit of subterfuge, we'd get onto the Kalgoorlie course when the, the track manager, Scaby Kingston, wasn't there and we'd use the dirt track to have a gallop, you know. Not that the old hack handled it too well, but we, we did. Uh, and then before that even, and this was the funny part, growing up, we lived in Collins Street and I was the younger of all of the boys in that group and there were a big, big cohort of boys and we all played football and cricket together and we were right next to... Wallace Park, which initially was an old gravel ground, and hence there was a book written many years later called Gravel Rash, and it was about the footballers that had played there. Um, and you'd go down, you'd come home with bark missing, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, Mercura Chrome was the uh, sort of juice, <laughs> the, of, the, the juice of choice that Mum used. <laughs> like a red Indian, wouldn't you? <laughs> we, we we decided to come up with a, a concept of race day, where you'd put your bikes all in. And you'd draw a bike, a push bike. Now, if you got Ronnie Orr's big 10-speed beast, you were home and host. But if you drew my little Melvin star with the banana seat, you're in a world of trouble, <laughs> particularly if you're a taller boy. And we all come up with our own racing colours and we'd put in 10 cents to nominate. Sticks were crafted then into whips and... Um, we, we had these races, and they were very, very funny. They were quite dangerous. Uh, you'd come off Parsons Street into Burke as you turned for home and kicked off the corner, and there was always that bit of loose gravel. Roads weren't great. And, of course, there was the occasional pile-up there. And if you survived that and cars whipping down Burke Street as well, as you got to Ronnie Orr's house, where Dad was riding work for his stepfather, Maxie Andrews, at the time. Had a good horse called Arophilius there. And you'd get to the front, but then you had to try and avoid the Cujo of all Cujos of Burke Street, that was Sexy Rexy the mongrel mutt who'd leapt the fence and want to rip your leg off. <laughs> so you pedalled faster. So we had these beautiful romantic race days and we got a lot of fun out of it. And yeah. I, I think back now, you know, getting to this age, how it all started and we, we bump into each other, some of those boys, and we laugh like hell. So Dad um, became a steward with the yeah. Kalgoorlie Boulder Racing Club in the early 70s and you landed a job as a flag boy. I did. I did. I, I wanted a job, and he got sick of me in the end. Um, we, we had a fractured relationship, my father and I, and uh, luckily towards the end, and he passed away um, 22 years ago now, um, but he, he ran into some health issues and, and mental health issues along the journey, and um, he was an awfully um, uh, proud man. Uh, he presented himself like no other on a racetrack. I remember him ironing his shirts to go to work and you could cut your finger on the seams. I mean, he was immaculate mm. to a point. And so I'd badgered him about getting a job down there and the club, for the very first time, gave me permission to become a valet in the jockey's room. And it was a result of me as the flag boy, and I used to get a nice little urn for doing not much, standing 100 yards in front of the old clapped-out barrier stools, holding a flag if there happened to be a false start, of which there never was in three years. So I'd take home my six or seven dollars and it was... You never raised the flag. Never had to raise the flag (laughs) once, BM. But um, I I retrieved this yellow cap one day that had flown off the scully of a jockey by the name of Tommy Graham, who I, I wasn't very familiar with other than the fact that he'd led all the way in a Perth Cup in 1974 and on a horse called Kabuki and got beaten in the last stride having led over two miles and then Allegation owned by Rod Evans, Milky Evans, Lindsay Rudland, uh, Damien's uh, stepfather uh, got him right on the line and it probably broke Tommy's heart he finished up riding in Kalgoorlie, Irishman 
very loud Irishman, uh, but um, small man, big heart, big heart. Anyway, he, I, I retrieved the cap and I gave it back to him in the jockey's room. And once I went into that jockey's room, Boomer, that was when I knew this was the place I wanted to be. The vernacular, the smell of the room, again, that leather, um, the nervousness, the tension, even for jockeys. And some of those jockeys, I mean, they were there for a reason. They weren't the best uh, riding in those days. A lot of them had become locals and um, were working other jobs as well. They they really did, I think, underpin the industry there. And, you know, there were jockeys that would be probably uh, slightly under the weather when they got there to have a few nerve settlers before they started. And I know that for a fact because I finished up having to run from the bar to give the, the scotch bottle a workout there <laughs> to top up their dry ginger. So all of these things you learned along the way and you were mounting saddles and you were getting colours ready and I could identify colours straight away, bang, 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 everywhere they were. And you'd put everything together. And, and so Tom gave me a job and, and uh, forever thankful. So you'd be one it. of the first valets in Australia, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think I was. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually, what age were you? Uh, I was uh, 10. 10 at, 10. The, 10 at the time. I was talking to uh, uh, Vinnie Mills, uh, the father of Simon Mills, um, the jumps jockey, ex-jumps mm. jockey. And, of course, he's the valet, you know, for, for Ollie and Preble and all of those over here. And I had dinner with him one night, and it was a lovely discussion we had about those times as a valet, you know. Mm. That was special. Um, uh, one day, Tommy, um, he rode five winners for his brother-in-law who was training for a fellow by the name of Wally Hanna who owned Barossa Boy and Skyfaloo and all of yeah. those good horses. Pink and blue quarters? Uh, lilac and purple. Lilac, lilac and purple. purple quarters, yeah. 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 A lovely set of silks. But um, he rode five winners this day and the punt was enormous. And I remember him dropping me off at home in his old Falcon 500 and pulled up and he said, here, this is for you, champ, in his Irish lilt. And um, it, it gifted me 300 cash Whoa. as a 10-year-old. Now, that was yeah. probably you know more than double what my father was earning as a t- PNG linesman at the time. So uh, I, I worked with Tommy until I was about 14 and other jockeys too, and particularly uh, you know, interstate jockeys that came and rode for the Invitational, the, you know, the Peter Cooks, the Neville Voigts, uh, you know, Mick Gorham and... Uh, Letsy. Johnny Letts, yeah, yeah Letsy was there uh, and... Um, Mel Shoemaker, uh, so many of them, if I think back, and I, I assisted them with their gear when they arrived in Calderite on this one particular day. So you talk about education. Um, I don't think you could have a better one no, preparing no, you no. for the craft that we, of course, deliver, and, and mm. I've been so right. fortunate to have done that for all of these years, getting on nearly 40 years. And, and out of that, working in that room as the valet, that provided the opportunity to become the understudy race caller to Milton Cairnduff, who was the uh, race caller at the time, and had been for over a quarter of a century. And uh, that happened when I was probably at 16 years of age. Yeah. Uh, do you remember that first meeting? I do, yeah, yeah. really, yeah, 1978. I was only given the one race to call, but that one race, and this is where luck comes into it, that one race from Kalgoorlie was taken by... 6PR, who were the racing station in Perth. And at that time, John K. Watts, the great Geelong hero, and Barry Martin were the kings of breakfast radio in Perth. Watts and Martin, uh, their ratings would be unsurpassed, I think. And John happened to be an old East Perth um, legend, as my cousin Kenny McCauley, Noddy McCauley was, of course, there as well. They knew each other. And uh, I didn't know John, but he'd heard this one description... I don't know whether the story got twisted along the way a little bit, but he told me many years later after I was offered the job at PR 
that it was he who discovered me, but it turned out that it was his wife, Dale, that suggested uh, that he should give me a call um, and, and bring me to Perth. But that was a couple of years after I'd started. So I had a few calls under the belt, and I was going up to Leonora and Linster and Lave and all these far-flung northeastern goldfields tracks, amateur riders. All dirt was, tracks. All dirt. Yeah. And I was cutting my teeth there, and, and I'd go up to Leonora and I'd ride a bit of work for... Jiggy Biggs and a few of the others whilst I was there, call the races and just develop the craft. And I was actually as a postman at the time, Beamer, which is <laughs> I'd left school at 15, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And um, the former head steward at the races when they employed their own stewards was Tony Lalich. And he's still alive today and I bump into him occasionally and he gave me my first actual job was at Kyle Motors in the spare parts well you know I couldn't tell the difference between a, a seat cover and a bumper bar so I, I had no no hope in the world I, I didn't last too long but um, I was playing football and at the time and um, and very very fit were on the bikes in those days and I finished up taking a position at the post office as a postie it kept me fit and uh, it turned out to be a very very intriguing couple of years on Top of the old two-speed Red Terror, which I affectionately called Big Red. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, it's a different connotation to the late male, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it always got through, Beamer. That was an interesting chapter. Uh, it taught me a lot about life. I bet it did. It, um, I, I was assigned, and there were five particular rounds that you were given. And Kalgoorlie's a very widespread community. I was gifted round one. For a period now, round one, it, it took in the famous Kalgoorlie Bordellos, the famous Hay Street Bordello strip, oh, which yes. was up and about big time back yeah. in the day. Yeah. And uh, I had to deliver the mail to the women of the night. As a sixteen-year-old, I um, became acquainted to a few of the workers uh, who were in a containment policy. Uh, I wasn't really familiar with too much about life at that stage. And I, I delivered the mail and I befriended a few of these particular women and also the madams who ran these bordellos. Uh, famously, one of them was called Mona Maxwell uh, of 164 Hay Street. I never forget addresses. Got a phone number? Uh, I think she's well and truly passed by now, Beamer. Uh, she was old back then. But she was a very kindly woman and uh, she uh, allowed me to park big red in behind the Spanish style arches and pop this in this is a, the bike <laughs> this is the bike big red he saw a lot he saw a lot in his time big red and uh, she'd um, allow me to come in and have lunch uh, in the kitchen as they had a full-time uh, cook there and it was very hot in Kalgoorlie and they had a big pool and not many people had pools in the gold fields back in those days and she allowed me to go out and have a swim whilst the girls were out having a swim during the day because they were unable to leave where they were uh, because of this containment policy. And up until that particular stage, uh, the only Brazilian I was aware of, Brian, was Pelé. Uh, (laughs) And so that changed very quickly for me uh, at that particular time. But I, I got to learn a lot about people and life and I would run bets for the girls to the TAB at the Star and Garter Hotel. And on weekends, I'd take one or two of them out to Broad Arrow because they were not able to drink with the locals. And so I'd become a bit of a pal. Mm. And I'd become a good ear for these women who'd gone through a lot. And then you start to work out, why do people take on a, on a you know, a career, yeah. career or occupation mm. like that? I'm not really sure. Uh, some were 
Some were quite sad, actually, the stories, how they'd finished up in Kalgoorlie, but yeah. I, I never forgot that. It sort of made you appreciate what you have today, uh, you work hard for, because other people don't get the same breaks and, you know, they've got to do things that others would probably look down on. How true. Mm. And, uh, gee, what, a, what an education oh. in life for a, for a teenager on a push bike. Well, it was. No, the, the, the biggest one of all was um, one of the other madams who worked over the road at, um, uh, I think it was uh, 141 Hay, and uh, she was a raven-haired woman with a mysterious eastern look about her, Middle Eastern look. And I got to know her reasonably well in time, and uh, her name was Stella. She said, you, you like the races, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. I really, I'm captivated by it. Everything I want to do is to do with horse racing. She said, my, my father was involved in horse racing in Sydney. And I said, oh, OK. She said, well, actually, my illegitimate father. And um, I don't know whether or not you could say it, but um, he, he, she told me that he famously threw money to the crowd when his horse won a golden slipper back in the early 1960s. Escalier. So, well, I'll let you say that. <laughs> first, first Galea, Eskimo Prince, and about 63? Yeah, it was. Um, that was the year I was born. But um, I, I think back now, and I, I saw a picture of Perse many, many years later, and I, I could see that same sort of Middle mm. Eastern look with his silver hair and white suit. And then I looked at that woman that I'd spoken to, and I thought, yeah. well, maybe it wasn't a story. Maybe it was the truth she was telling me. Throw to the sire. Definitely. Tell me about the days of getting that break at 6PR and how did it all start as the the race caller? Well, the call came uh, from Rick Rogers, one of the most majestic voices on radio of all time, a racing coordinator, and he was the head of sport at PR back there in the late 1970s. And I'd been working at the ABC in Kalgoorlie. I'd got a job there. I was working with the Kalgoorlie Minor, writing racing. I was calling football Uh, The new TV station had just started, VEW8, and I was presenting racing and sport up there on their station. So very, very much in uh, a raw sense, uh, you know, cutting edge, trying to get a TV station up and going and no experience. But it was great. We enjoyed it. And I was very young and I was enthusiastic. Stan Brown, through John Bowler, who's now the Lord Mayor of Kalgoorlie, offered me a job uh, three days a week reading sport, and I was to work with a bloke by the name of Brian Dennis. Um, He famously went on to become Kevin Bloody Wilson, and I used to be his mailman, um, but we we become quite good pals back in those days. And then as a result of that, um, I looked at an opportunity to go to the ABC in Perth, and I, I, I lucked out there. Uh, Mike McCann um, got the job. And um, then just after that, uh, the, the call came from 6PR, and it was from Rick Rogers on behalf of John K. Watts to say that there was an, a role as a cadet caller with the station. Uh, I'd be behind Trevor Jenkins, um, also uh, Johnny Hunt, and Stewie Shenton was there at the time and I think Stewie may have just run into a few different problems one way or the other and was leaving and that's how the opportunity came up. So you were you a third banana yeah? Yeah down the rung certainly going to earn my stripes so I was going to be the chief cook bottle washer you'd work the newsroom you'd be doing general sport you'd be calling you'll be going off calling you know out of country trot meetings Uh, the good part was was that they assigned me Kalgoorlie and they'd started to take all of the meetings but they wanted their own broadcaster to go there and so they gave me the chance to go back home oh. every weekend for the racing Perfect season. Fit. So yeah. it was just great, and I could continue. And that hasn't changed, I might add. Yeah. I'm still calling the round, the famous Kelgally round, you know, all these years on. Trevor Jenkins, we remember, mm. is, a, is a great caller. John Hunt, uh, Max yeah. Simmons, 
on the PA yeah. went, went for a lifetime. Fantastic caller, great guy. Simo was my man. He, yeah. he, he, he uh, it's you know, you use guys as mentors, or you want to model yourself on certain yes. blokes, and yeah. you know, um, for one reason or another, I'm not quite sure why. Tappy was always one, I think, because of that theatrical aspect to, to yeah. John. I, I loved listening to him for that. But you know, like a lot of people likened you to uh, Tappy's calling style. Well, maybe, maybe it's a great compliment. Yeah, well, um, I, I would take that because I've been an awfully big fan of John's uh, from the Sydney side of things. But Max Simmons is a guy that I never really felt received the kudos. Not that he would want the kudos, Max, uh, nationally, because you didn't hear him over here. I know Alan Thomas said one day when they went to Coffs Harbour, he filled in for me at a race caller's cup meeting. And Max, at the very last minute, jumped on a plane. I couldn't go. And he finished up calling and turned the PA on, and Alan Thomas said his head nearly spun off his shoulders when this voice resonated through the horns over the race course at Coffs. And he said, who is this? It was like God was speaking to him from the broadcasting box. And he had that vo- that voice. Mm-hmm. Max was my mentor. He was a father figure. Uh, in fact, uh, I'll, I'll never forget the day, Beamer, I was about to call the first midweek race at Ascot, 1800. They are at the barrier and my phone had rung and it was um, a lady that I knew as an auntie. It was um, uh, the wife of my dad's best friend for life, uh, Graham Bennett. And they'd found Dad had moved in to virtually a shed down the back of where they lived and he'd stopped eating and drinking. He was 59 years of age. He'd been through all sorts of problems. Luckily, I'd taken him to the Cull Cup uh, six weeks earlier, but I could see that he was in a bit of trouble. And they'd found him. He'd passed away. And it was moments before the race and Max used to saunter in there as they were moving in. He was pretty relaxed. And um, I remember walked out and I was sheet white and, you know, you'd lost your father, no matter what the relationship was. And it had been fractured and I tried to build bridges with him over many, many years and finally got there in the home straight, as it were. And I remember walking out of the calling box and Max was there and he could tell that I, you know, I was distressed. And seriously, he he, he just wrapped me up like a father would and uh, looked after me all afternoon to make sure that I got through, rang me that night, and he continued to do so. Mm. I loved him for it. Uh, he, he was the most respected man in racing. Everyone loved Max Simmons. And um, he passed away three years ago on my birthday, which was the 21st of January, and I was given the great privilege to do his funeral. Uh, and they had it at the race course at Ascot, and you couldn't move. Uh, there were people from everywhere that had come to say their last farewell to a great man but a wonderful broadcaster. Mm. I know Bill Collins is called the accurate one but to me Max Simmons was the one. He never used a binocular stand like most of us do handheld and he had a piece of copper wire that ran from the ceiling to his bench where he rested his elbows and he would adjust the copper wire according to the rail shift to find the line and he would nail them. I can tell you now 99.99% 99.99% of the time. Is that right? Remarkable. Yeah. Mm. Gee, I, I didn't know that part of the story. Oh, look, truly, I, as I say, he's one of the great broadcasters that this nation never really heard fully. We, he called 44 Perth Cups so, and, and put broom racing on the map. Great to be talking to you this morning uh, on Racing Life. And we're going to take a break, and I want to come back and 
and move to sort of probably the last couple of decades and some of the the great horses that you've uh, you've called because so many of the best and top of the tree probably in modern time is northerly yeah, yeah. did come east and we'll take this break now what i love about my job is providing comfort to people through service and quality food i use my creativity every day to help achieve our common goal assisting the community in times of need i love having the privilege of being the last person to care for the physical body of someone's loved one it's an honor to provide support to grieving families which i feel i was born to do and i love that i'm a funeral planner i love my role as i meet people with diverse cultural and religious beliefs Turban Brothers funerals celebrating lives celebrating international women's day sunday march 8 you're listening to this is your racing life for tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives welcome back this is racing life on rsn and uh, my special guest this morning on a sunday morning we're just kicking back and and sharing some tales uh, Two old race callers doing their best, <laughs> sitting here having a cup of coffee. Darren McCauley, the voice from the West. One uh, little older than the other, though. <laughs> very much so, very much so. <laughs> Tell me about Bob Peters, Cerise White Cross Sashes White Cap. Incredible, incredible owner. Yeah, he is. I, I first came across those silks back, oh, I think it was... Uh, Congressman or Paragon of Virtue, one yeah, of those. Congressman in the Caulfield Back Cup. in the 80s, mm-hmm. yeah, Bob um, took a few horses up to Kalgoorlie and uh, that was the first time that I'd seen the Cerise and White. Little did we know then the impact that he would have on WA racing and Australian racing, really, when you consider um, the, the number of Group 1 races that he's won and where he sits in the pantheon of, of breeders, of a private breeder behind the likes of Coolmore Godolphin. I mean, he had them covered. Uh, for the number mm. of Group 1 wins just a few years ago. Yeah. You know, he's a horseman through and through, and he's a wonderful man to talk to. Um, he got one of the very first sets of Cerise when they came out. There was a new colour introduced into WA. And at the time, I think um, Harry Bolton, who was head of the WA Turf Club, suggested that he use a combination of this new colour, Cerise and White. And, of course, um, as history now tells us, they've been awfully successful. But... Um, Whilst he wins a lot of races and he has such an impact on the WA racing scene, the quality of the horses that he breeds and the mares that he puts to the top stallions ensures that our product is still, you know, the best it can possibly be, being in such an isolated racing jurisdiction. Whilst there are those that probably, you know, get tired of Bob winning all of the big races, once you take that out of your industry, you take away that quality, then you're not going to be left with too much. And I think that'll be a sad day. And he's getting on in years, so yep. um, who's coming behind? Well, to be true... It doesn't happen that way anymore. No, I don't think there are too many. Uh, I, I think that's one of the situations we're going to find ourselves in the the decline of, of breeders, young breeders coming along. Eddie Rigg there a few years ago looked as though he was going to really get involved and you know things went a bit pear-shaped for Ed. But uh, you've got Ron Sayers who, you know, is starting to scale back a little too and he's produced a, a you know, tremendous number of... Part owner of Northerly, of course, um, mm. Ronnie. But he's had a farm at Gidjiganup which has produced a lot of horses over the years. Um, you know, I, I sort of describe them as virtually as the, as the hay of the industry. They, they feed a lot of the jurisdictions around WA and, and you need those guys. But, you know, he's getting older as well and there's no one to replace him coming through. You've had an operation like Mungrup Stud who have produced a lot of horses. They've scaled back as well. And we're starting to see the decline in numbers of broodmare coverings and, and smaller fields. And, and I fear, Brian, quite frankly 
for what the next 10 years is going to look like. Not so much here in, you know, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland. You've got that great cross-flow of borders and, and South Australia the same. But when you're in WA, you're very isolated over there. If you don't have that investment and people with a deep passion, you need passion. Money will only take you so far, as Bob Peters once said to me. He, he gets offended when people say that he deserves to get back out of racing because he puts so much in. And he said, it's not about that. He said, when you think about all of the sheikhs, the Arabs, Godolphin, how long it took them to win a Melbourne Cup, yeah. you know, he said, it's not about the money, it's about the desire to win big races. Going back, uh, you would have been just starting out, but mm. how, how much effect did the Laurie Connell um, situation have on, on the image of racing? Yeah, terribly. I, I think you know, at the time they were putting extraordinary amounts of money into racing through sponsorship, through Rothwell's. There was a lot of big betting that was going on. There was a lot of horses being bought at yearling sales. And it became a very false economy. And I think there was a fair deal of impropriety, which history will tell us when you look at what happened in WA racing. And I think it left a, an indelible stain on the racing industry because the 1970s was the golden era. I mean, you'd experienced it. Mm. People that had travelled from Victoria, when you had the likes of Bart and TJ and CS yeah. and GT Murphy and all of the top trainers that would come across. Derbies, the Perth Cup. Yeah, the Summer Carnival was something else, wasn't it? First million-dollar race, uh, yeah, $100,000 races. Yeah. That's right, exactly. So we had the golden era of the 1970s, early 80s, when Kingston Town came and won the Western Mail Classic, the race now called the Kingston Town. And so we lived that. But then from the mid-'80s, it changed. It changed through the behaviours of a number of trainers and big punters. And it was a huge bookmaker's ring. And sure, it was theatre. And I was down in the cut and the thrust of it all. Then you had the Rocket Racer saga. Whether or not it happened, the story, it's become one of fable. Mm. That did really leave, I think, a smear. Um, and there wasn't a lot of transparency. People at the very high end who were running racing at the time, connected to trainers that may have had inappropriate methods of training. So I think that, right through the 90s, just about just about destroyed the integrity of racing in the West, quite frankly. And it took a really special horse to carry the state on his back and to lift the profile of WA. And you know the horse I'm talking about. Northerly. Mm. Absolutely. What a champion. Dan Miller's pouring the pressure on with the four-year-old Northerly who's gone up to eyeball Umrama. 400 metres out in the railway. Northerly in front. Umrum the fence. Cassidy hasn't moved on him yet. Sister Patricia and here comes old Conrad. The three-year-old cutting loose on the outside. Lord of the Pines can't go on. Slide away held up and then Lizzie Longlegs. 200 metres out. Old Conrad's coming at Northerly. Northerly in front. Brown's gone for the whip on old Conrad. Northerly's responded the four-year-old shakes off old Conrad Lizzie Longlegs then slide away a stunning win by Northerly and Dan Miller they win the railway Northerly too good for old Conrad with Fred Kersley and thanks. such a great story it is and it was a great combination and I had the the great pleasure of being involved with Neville Duncan who bred the horse through Oakland Park I remember sitting down at uh, Dunsborough little hamlet in the southwest and uh, that day that Northerly had his very first start and he was uh, certainly beaten and then 10 days later lined up, ironically, in an Aquanita Stakes over 1,500 metres and win that. 
And I thought, wow, you know. And then we didn't know how good he was going to be. And then, of course, he won an RJ Peters Stakes to qualify just to get into a railway stakes. And you had Umrum, who was a million-dollar winner, prepared by Leon McDonald. Yeah, terrific, terrific minor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Leon brought him across and the pumper road, Umrum. And Danny Miller, who only was retired off recently as the oldest jockey in the country. Of course, DR didn't give him one of his better rides. He saw more of the river than he saw the track. <laughs> but the great horse broke Umrum's heart that day mm. and then the rest is history. Then he came to Melbourne. He looked like, like a little boy against you know the men when he first arrived here. But you know I think as Miles he said later on, he dubbed him the fighting tiger. Mm. And how appropriate was that too? Because that's exactly what it was. When there was a scrap, Northerly was there ready for the fight. Yeah, we had one called Fields of Omar that was in a lot of those scraps. Uh, Northerly was too good for us. Yeah, you ran into it a few times. And I mean, you know, at the, at the same time, Sunline was the queen of the yeah, turf. And, it's a great time. Oh, was it ever? I mean, the, the quality of the horses, you, you, the, the old foo. I mean, mm. it, poor old foo running around against them at that stage. I know he got his moment down the track. Mm. When you were looking at you know Sunline and Viscount and, and so many other horses of that ilk of that time, and for Little Northerly to to take them on and beat them the yeah. way that he did, I know that he wasn't embraced initially after that first Cox Plate, but I think there was a sense of great admiration for him beyond that. You know they they they'd beaten he'd beaten the darling of the turf and, and that wasn't in the script for the Cox Plate that year. Another great uh, race that I remember you calling uh, was the ninety nine. It was two horses, King of Saxony. Yeah. Was it the Perth Cup and Rogan Josh? Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah 99. It was, 99 it was. It was interesting that year because Bart was across as a guest of the Carbine Club and I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, him at the Hyatt Hotel on the Friday uh, before. It was a really touching, emotional interview. Bart let his guard down and not too many people had seen that. And it was all because of Saintly, basically. Um, and it... The next day we, we saw each other. He was a guest in the director's room and King of Saxony was produced by the great J.J. Miller, first up two mile in the Perth Cup. And he was taking on a really good horse called Rogan Josh, who I'd been calling winning Pinjarra Bunbury Cups. I'd seen him win his first six for Marcus Forrest in Bunbury. Maxie Roney rode him. And he um, was now in the care of Colin Webster, master conditioner of horses, King of Saxony, Rogan Josh, head and head to the line. JJ pulls a rabbit out of the hat. First up, Stephen Miller gets him home, beats Rogan Josh. Well, Bart saw something in Rogan Josh. And so then the approach from Wendy Green happened. And after that cup, he went to Bart. And, of course, he won the Melbourne Cup. After same winning year. the McKinnon the same yeah, year. Yeah. So it was quite an interesting turn of events to come across. And, and we'd bumped into Bart numerous times up in Darwin with JR, Johnny Russell and that over the years. And... Uh, Wolfie Blass and became quite friendly with them on those particular trips. So, you know, uh, Bart was there, he got hold of Rogan Josh and he was just added to the vast number of cup winners that he'd had, but that was a great Perth Cup. 500 metres out and the leader victory mourned by a length and a half to nice timing. One and a half to Rogan Josh, switching around the hills of nice timing. Gwynganis battling away. Harvey's hard at work on West Town. Then Master Touch, Baptisto, King of Saxon. He's run a bit of a race. They turn the bend. Victory mourned the chestnut with the blaze first for home. Nice timing's trying to wear him down. Rogan Josh is next. And King of Saxony first up is starting to run at them. King of Saxony's coming at victory mourn. 
Moore, King of Saxony's hit the lead, Rogan Josh, Victory Moore, it's King of Saxony, Rogan Josh, King of Saxony in front, Rogan Josh diving, what a performance by JJ Miller, he's won the cup first up with King of Saxony, Rogan Josh second, photo third. Another one which I recall is that uh, Winterbottom Stakes, uh, Takeover Target and Apache Cat, you nailed it as you do, two wonderful horses all the way up the straight and you could see two geldings, neither would yield. It was such a beautiful race to call because mm. it was like a game of chess. Yeah. And Your move, my move. Yeah. Exactly yeah. right. Jay on takeover, dictating, controlling, Corey sitting on his back with the big baldy-faced chestnut Apache cat. And tactically, when the move was going to come, and, and you had a fair horse behind them called Marasco, just quietly yeah. too, who was an excitement machine. Yeah. And... Uh, just calling the race and being composed to deliver what was the ultimate outcome. And the difficulty of the race, and I know that that might have been experienced over here when you sort of the, the viewed and bower Melbourne Cup, you know, you think, oh, do you go, do you not have a go? It's, it's a difficult one because you don't get too many group ones in Perth, so you want to get them right when you do. And when Corey came off the back of Takeover Target, and these are two great horses, Takeover, you know, and Joe were fantastic with what they did with him in Perth. The promotion around him was phenomenal. And there was a massive crowd there that day, biggest crowd I can recall for a long, long time yeah. that went to the Winterbottom Stakes. And when they hit the line, and, of course, Takeover's got a rather pronounced white blaze himself, nowhere near as distinguishable as Apache Cat. And, of course, their two white noses were virtually in sync in the run to the line, and I, I thought, just for a moment, do I, don't I? <laughs> yeah, never got a lot of time to think. <laughs> no. And I went take over target and I was Apache Cat. And the next few seconds before the photo went up, you've experienced it. Oh, you know exactly yeah, what it's exactly. like in a big race. It's an eternity. Someone stops the clock. Yeah. And you just can't wait for that number to go up. And fortunately, yeah. it went up there. And, oh, the scenes that day were memorable. They were as good as I can recall when uh, Kingston Town won. And that was his last ever appearance on a track in 82 in that Western Mail Classic. I hadn't seen scenes like it. People were going crazy. Apache Cat coiled up, though, on the inside. He's looking for an out. He's badly pocketed as Hattaby Clorker pulls out three wide. Surprise impact behind them. Trail by Marasco. Royal Lock. Then Hipstone Line Innovation. Homeward bound and Danny Bow on the outside. Eyeballing takeover target. Brown looking for a run behind them with Apache Cat. Then Hattaby Clorker. Ford makes his move and takeover target. Boots a length and a half with Apache Cat getting off the fence. He's closing rapidly. Takeover target. Apache Cat. something about great horses and yep. performances uh, you can have all the promotions and whatever you like and time after time decade after decade I see it you see it you see it around the world there's something special about a great horse you know, we, we you know we were there at uh, Royal Ascot mm. for uh, Black Caviar on the final day but on the first day we saw an animal called Frankel I won't forget that. Oh, yeah. And we've been lucky, haven't we, I mean, oh. on our journeys? And yeah. we, we have seen each other a bit over the years in England at Royal Ascot. See you at Newmarket. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Either walking up and down the main street or, you know, you, you pop in and you see Frankel and you give him a pat and you think, you know, how, how lucky are we? I, 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 yeah. you, you know, I remember uh, Jerry Donnelly, who was a former very, very good jockey in WA. He won a railway on Marjolio back there in Great the 1970s. Horse, yeah. Came yeah. to George Hanley. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Normie Fawcett trained Marjolio. Um, beaten 
beat the horse I was strapping at the time, Burgess Queen, the great filly for Frank Maynard. I'd, I'd started out as an apprentice. I missed that on the way through with Frank for a little while. He was from Cal. Did you ride in a race? No, no, never got to that stage. But he'd actually broken in my first pony that I had, I had uh, this mongrel bred hack that we had trouble with. Anyway, Frank sorted it. But, um, you know, uh, Jerry came on a trip and he doesn't travel very often, but he um, came along to Judmont with us and stood there and shed tears and said, I've never been moved by being in the presence of a horse like this ever. I, I can't explain it. I don't even know how to describe what I'm feeling. This is Frankel. This is Frankel. This is Frankel. This is Frankel. And he, he got back on the bus, very quiet man, uh, frugal with his words, picked up the microphone on the bus, as you well know what we do, mm-hmm. yeah. and said it was the greatest day of his life. Is that right? Yeah. yeah that, and that's the power of a horse. Yeah. That's the enormity yeah. of what a horse can bring and bring out the emotion of people you least expect it to come from. Tell me about Delicacy 2015. Oh, what a what a filly. What might have been? Oh, yeah. Yeah, what might have been for sure. Um, she was, again, one of these mares that Bob had prepared, had nurtured, um, right the way through and knew how good she was. And, you know, her heroics, I thought, were just unprecedented. A, a mare like her, a filly, when she went through and she won all of those races the way that she did. Well, she won the Derby. The Oaks. The Oaks. Adelaide Oaks. Yeah, went to Adelaide. A Perth Cup. And to carry the weight. 59. And to do it the way she did in all sorts of trouble. I remember, and I know the broadcast, and they play it quite a lot back at home, and sometimes the words come out just the way they need to, Mm. to describe the moment. And she was sublime, you know. She was absolutely sublime that day. And unfortunately, in order to get her off the rail, Pete, who loved her, Absolutely loved Peter Hall. Um, he just had to come out a bit quick on her and the weight that she had, and she still won with a heart and a courage. But unfortunately, she sustained an injury, and it was the injury that finished her career off. But Damajos worked her way back to the front. Kirov Boy calling it a day. Came back underneath the neck of Delicacy, though. Around the outside, real love with Woodsville at the top of the straight. But Damajos, the leader from Woodsville, Neverland, still there. She gets up on the inside. Real love joins in. Here comes Dark Musket, though, with a run. Neverland, Dark Musket, real love. And now Delicacy. Here she comes. Delicacy under the 59 went to Neverland and real love dark musket it's delicacy against the inside sublime brilliant greatness in the cup delicacy beat neverland she mm. could have been probably one of the best ever uh, had she come east especially she would have come east no yeah doubt. you know there is you know many a slip between the lip and the cup uh, they say but um who knows I, I think that she could have been heart carries horses a long long way on top of their ability and boy oh boy i'd hate to think how big her heart was. How long to go? Yeah, good question. Good question. Um, we, we know, we know. I've, I've been through it. It's been 40 years, and of that time I've been doing the thoroughbreds since 1992. I'm not quite sure. Max carried the flag until he was 65, and he finished up continuing to call until cancer got him in his late 70s up in Broome. And so he just loved it. He didn't think too much about it. It was all fun for him. And, and I think it is and for me as well. It, it's we're a bit kindred spirit-like, I think, in mm. many ways. I, I see it 
going to work, but I wonder when they're going to tap me on the shoulder and say it's time that you found a real job, mate. Yeah. You know, yeah. quite frankly, because I've just loved doing it. And yeah. I know it's every Saturday and you miss a lot on the way through, um, you know, with your kids' sport and things like that. And my young bloke plays football uh, at a high-level amateur competition in Perth these days. And I'd love to go and watch him play football before he hangs the boots up. That's the part I, I missed every Saturday, yeah. um, a son and a daughter. And then football, uh, he'd play on Sunday, but I'd, I'd mm. be doing Sunday races. And um, when grandkids arrived, I wanted to be there for that. So I haven't missed a beat since. It's yeah, fantastic. I, I, I'm looking forward to that stage. It'll be down the track a little. Uh, mine are a bit younger than, than yours, Beamer, of course. But um, look, I'm still going to the races enthusiastic. I still love going and going through the process. And I love the theatre of race day. Mm. Things are changing. Let's be honest. It's not the same model that we grew up with. Administration's changing. Racing is all-encompassing. It's non-stop. There's hardly a breath for the participants these days. And I guess the challenge is to, you know, ensure that this generation, younger generation, the next generation, are going to come through and not just just enjoy racing for, you know, uh, the, the social aspect to it, getting out there and, and having a drink. And that's great. That's terrific. Yeah. But if you haven't got the passion for the horse, and if it's no horse, there's no racing. I mean, if you don't die for the horse to go there and want to have an emotional investment on that animal. And I know, you know, racing has got a lot of headwinds against it these days with activism, etc. you know, and the welfare. And that's fair enough too. I think that is paramount. And integrity is paramount in racing. But... You know, unless we continue to foster the next generation or generations, I, I, I sort of wonder where thoroughbred racing may finish up. Yeah, I agree. Um, there are so many other distractions. There are so many other things that people can do with their leisure time, and it's easy just to operate off a phone mm. rather than go and watch uh, all that sort of thing. And that's one of the greatest challenges we have. And I don't see the, you know, the, the quick fix. I don't see it. Darren, with your talent, which was there... For all to see for you know two decades ago, why didn't you ever come east? Why? Why? I'm sure there would have been um, offers to come out of the west and maybe go overseas or come east. Um, why'd you stay home? Oh, yeah, that's a difficult question, Beamer. Um, the first time I was offered the role that John was going to depart in Sydney at Sky Racing, and I'll never forget the day driving over the Narrows Bridge and John had rung and said, I need to share something with you and I I want you to keep this to yourself. I'm about to pull the pin and I'd like you to consider when the offer comes for you to move over to Sydney and take on that role, which blew me away. One, why was he retiring at 58 for a start? And two, why would he think that I was good enough to go and fill those incredibly big shoes? Mm. I mean... John Tapp was an icon, is an icon. Absolutely. And, um, you know, a true legend. So I thought about it and I, I had overtures and they'd come across and my wife at the time um, really wasn't that keen. We'd just had a new baby, just bought a new block to build a house. And uh, she was not keen about moving across there and so unfortunately I had to reject the offer, as flattering as it was, and Graham McNeese was awfully instrumental in trying to get me across there. I, I remember that, and I'll be forever thankful for for what he did 
he moved mountains to get me to Sydney, but it didn't work. And there was an opportunity to come to Melbourne. Um, I had uh, uh, an overture to, to move across here um, some years ago. And look, I, I, the one thing I'll say, you know, Mel- Melbourne have been blessed with the richness of callers and I wouldn't be saying this just because we're doing this interview but I mean you leave a lasting legacy Greg leaves a lasting legacy you know Bill and and Bert before you guys and so many others Frank O'Brien as well and now you've got Matt and what a perfect perfect fit he is the Victorian race absolutely he is just a class act and I, I love his calling and and he'll make sure that, you know, the, the craft is continued on for many years to come. He's got all of it in front of him. The broadcasters, as they come through, you, mm. you, you're just the keeper of the profession, aren't you? You know, look after it and pass it on to the next generation. And um, I always work by that. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think there's probably less stringency placed on younger callers coming through to develop their craft in some of the more far-flung reaches. There's so much racing on these days. And, look, without being disrespectful, I think, you know, there's that dearth, maybe, of of the quality that there may have once been. And, as I say, this is not being disrespectful at all because these young guys work hard. They want to be the next Mm. number one callers. Mm. They're all aspiring, and that's what you have to be. Kept us all going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And, you know, I wish them all the best of luck, but I don't think the opportunity today allows for the creativity, the theatrical side of our craft to be able to deliver the narrative the way that we once did, how we were taught. And I think also there were far, far harder taskmasters on us when we were calling that would pull us in and if we did something wrong and we weren't using the right vocabulary and our diction wasn't up to standard then you'd be sat in the sin bin for a little while. I remember the Fuhrer we nicknamed Dick Hemming, the program director. I remember Dick Hemming. He was a great man, hard as nails, softest part of Dick was his teeth. But boy, was he a, was he a teacher. And I'd be forever thankful for him being there as the program director at 6PR when he was. We had some wonderful callers over the years in, in WA and um, learned a lot from, from them and him. And, and I, I just sort of hope that maybe the younger broadcasters coming through today seek the advice of the older heads, whether it be a Brian Martin, whether it be a Greg Miles, a John Tapp. Mm. Seek their advice, their wisdom, and learn from it. Well summed up. Great to see you, mate. Yeah, lovely to see you, Ben. Yeah, good to see you in Melbourne. Uh, Love your calls. Um, Thanks, mate. And you're a quality bloke, mate. I always really look forward to catching up with you, and thanks for spending time with us. Been an absolute pleasure. I love walking down memory lane, and I think, you know, as the days sort of edge towards the finishing line you get more and more nostalgic and reflective along the way and you think well where have those years gone but I wouldn't have missed one of them for a single moment yeah I'm the same I wouldn't swap it for anything uh good health mate um thanks thanks for being a part Darren McCall eh? a part of Racing Life on RSN this morning. What I love about my job is providing comfort to people through service and quality food. I use my creativity every day to help achieve our common goal, assisting the community in times of need. I love having the privilege of being the last person to care for the physical body of someone's loved one. It's an honour to provide support to grieving families, which I feel I was born to do, and I love that. I'm a funeral planner. I love my role as I meet people with diverse cultural and religious beliefs. Turbin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives, celebrating international Women's Day, Sunday, March 8.